You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Let's go ahead and get started. Let's get back into the groove. Just a few brief words about, you know, this morning we've, we've, we've tried to describe where our culture is in terms of its belief and commitment to the reliability, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture. We've briefly looked at how we've arrived at such a low point. Uh, We began to ask the question, what should we do? And to answer that question, we sought the counsel of Jesus, which I think is always wise for us to do. What did Jesus say on the subject? He said, build your house on the rock. In other words, what are we to do? Recommit ourselves to the Word of God. Now, from there we ask the question, is the word reliable? And we saw that this can be taken in two ways. It can refer to content. It can refer to transmission. In terms of content, I shared with you why I believe the Bible is reliable. I can answer it with one word. What's the one word? Resurrection. Resurrection. Why do I believe the Bible is the true word of God and not other bodies of literature out there? Resurrection. Uh, Why do I believe the Christian Bible is the Word of God and not the Book of Mormon or the Koran? One answer, resurrection. One word answer, that is. Resurrection. Now, I don't want to give you the impression this is the only answer we could give. There are many other answers we could give. But as I was thinking, I want to to help us to communicate these things. And I want you to be able to leave here with that that answer, uh, with a answer that's good and solid. So from there, we began to discuss the second way our question could be taken. Is the Bible reliable? That can speak to its content. It can also speak to its transmission. And one common objection that I think almost every hand came up when I, when I asked, have you ever, you know, has anyone ever objected with the circle? And a lot of, I saw a lot of affirmation. A lot of us have heard that. So how do we respond to the circle? Well, one, we just come, come right out and say, listen, the Scriptures would fully anticipate miscommunication. You know, the scriptures were written to help us communicate. Why? Because it fully anticipates miscommunication. We can become better husbands studying the scripture. It will teach us to be better communicators and vice versa. Um, It helps us with our weaknesses. One of our weaknesses is communication. So the Bible fully expects forgetfulness and distortion. Secondly, the Bible is not simply the product of one person whispering in the ear of another person. Okay, that's that circle... That circle assumes that there's no God um, superintending the message. Um, and and that's, that's just not what the Bible claims to be. Um, it's simply not. So the circle doesn't apply. Now, our skeptic friends will be thinking this is quite a claim. I mean, some of our loved ones may have been in college or university and where they heard the professor say there are, there are just numerous errors. in the, Usually the New Testament's what's picked on. Uh, there's numerous uh, errors and problems with the New Testament. And others have watched some of the Discovery-type channels. You know, I've got friends, and you have friends that are, they, all their information comes from those sources. They sit and watch those, those things. Um, and there they have seen the testimony of folks who claim that the Bible is just full of errors and contradictions. So we need, I mean, for the sake of our own faith, we need a response to this. What, what do we say to this? Um, uh, and let me start with a common charge that's heard now. There's a charge that's floating around by one popular scholar that claims there are actually 400,000 errors 
and the Greek manuscripts. I'm not, that's not a mis... 400,000 errors. Um, the Greek New Testament has only a little over 137,000 words. <laughs> yeah, there, okay, there's, there's... In fact, in the ESV translation, the whole Bible has 757, a little over 757,000 words. That's how many words we have. Um, if we have 400,000 errors in the midst of 137,000 words, that would be staggering. I mean, how do you parse that? I mean, we, could, we, could we just do some division? I mean, if we do, we're going to come up with 2.9 errors for every word that's in the New Testament. <laughs> it's inconceivable to me that great minds such as St. Augustine or Calvin or Luther or Jonathan Edwards or John Owen or most recently C.S. Lewis would have had the respect and regard for the Scriptures that they had if they were that full of errors. You know, C.S. Lewis was a, a, he was a literary giant. He was a, a professor of, of ancient literature. Would he have taken the Scriptures seriously if they were riddled with those kinds of errors? I, I think not. But um, that's not, I, I don't think that's a good answer. That's not the answer we want to give. Let, let's tease this a little bit more. The first thing I think we should say, if someone comes to us, you know, if a, a, a college student comes to us or someone who's watched the Discovery Channel and said, well, you know, you guys believe in that Bible, but it's just full of errors. I mean, the first thing we need to say is, you know, in, in, the, in the corpus of the Greek manuscripts that we had, are there errors in that corpus of manuscripts? And the answer is yes. Of course there are errors. How many? To my knowledge, no one has counted them. To my knowledge, no one has counted them. And, and some of them said, well, why haven't they counted them? Well, it would be kind of silly to do so. I mean, I don't think it would really be profitable uh, to count them. Why? Because many of them have to do with spelling. <laughs> spelling. Yeah, spelling. Sometimes you'll hear scholars joke and say, you know, the ancients, they had the same problem we had. They didn't spell any better than we do. You know? I, I am terrible at spelling. Um, you know, I'll let you in on a secret. You know, at different times when I've taught or I was teaching at the seminary, I didn't use the blackboard, you know. I, I would embarrass myself to all get out. I'd be misspelling everything, you know. I don't use the blackboard. Um, so, um, yes, I'm, I got this one. But let me give you an example here. I want to use the word snow. Some of you will know that I had, this, I had these talks like a little bit better than halfway written and I decided to like, trash them. Um, I didn't really trash them, I just discarded them. I thought, I'm going to try this over again. But there's one section that I kept, and it's this little section on snow. I'll tell you why I kept it. I was writing this on April 17th. April 17th. You know what it was doing on April 17th? It was snowing like it was Christmas Eve. I'm looking out, and I'm like, it's snowing. This would be like a wonderful, it'd be like a really a really uh, charming Christmas Eve, but it's April 17th. And I had come across an article that was written by somebody, I don't recall who, but he had used the word snow in one of his, one of his arguments. And he had, some, he had done some etymological work on the word snow. And I thought, it was, I thought you know, I'm going to use it. You know, we don't think much about snow, S-N-O-W, but... Um, in English, our, our word snow has gone through all kind of changes. Uh, in fact, it comes to us from an old German dialect which was spelled S-N-A-I-W-A-Z. 
S-N-A-I-W-A-Z. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I think it's Snawis. Sounds kind of German, don't it? Snawis. I mean, German friends would be like, what? That does not sound German. That sounds like, you know, some fruitcake in West Virginia saying something I never heard of before. Um, Snawis. Um, um, it's also a mixture of a, of a, a European dialect, uh, which would be spelled Snoigos. I recognize that a little bit better than Snailus, but S-N-O-Y-G-O-S, Snoigos, Snoigos. So even in the German language, it changes pretty quickly to Snowy, S-N-O-W-E-E, Snowy. Um, Snowy sounds more familiar to us. But both words, as they move into Middle English, they come in as, um, there, are two, there are two spellings that are acceptable. Snaw, S-N-A-W, snaw, and snow. Now, of course, in some parts of the country, we might hear the word snaw, it's gnawing. Um, but it's not supposed to be spelled S-N-A-W. If we see S-N-A-W, we'd say, you know, um, that's, a, that's a spelling error, you know. Um, that's a spelling error. So in modern English, we've dropped S-N-A-W. We've dropped snaw. Now, if I had intentions of making my written message available for the public, I wouldn't write on April 17th there was snaw, S-N-A-W. <laughs> you know, my spell check would, would like do what it does, you know. Um, and, uh, or I wouldn't write on April 17th there was snowy or snoigos or snowis. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't write that. What, why? At the, at the very least, I would tax my reader into looking it up. If they looked these words up, they, if you did a search on the Internet, you'd find these words. But even then, they'd have to guess, okay, is this just a, some kind of glitch in the word program that this author was using? Or what happened here? Uh, there'd be a mystery. Now, let me go a step further. Suppose I was working with a written document that was written centuries ago. And I wanted to, um, I wanted to make, you know, I wanted the general public to be able to easily understand it. And I come across the word snaw or snoigos or snice or snowy. What would I do? I realize it's snow. You know, I, I, they're talking about snow. I'd write S-N-O-W. I'd write snow. And this is exactly what we have happening in the manuscripts. It's exactly what we have happening. These aren't even spelling errors. That's the way it was spelled uh, at the writing of the manuscript. Um, it was simply spelled like that. Languages are dynamic. They're always changing. Pronunciations change. The meaning of words change. For example, in the King James translation, sometimes you'll read the word charity. What do you think about when you, when you hear the word charity? Something in need. Helping somebody in need. But... Um, the King James translators in the 1600s are translating the, uh, one of the words for, for love. And their readers would have understood what's in view as love. Or you, you read the writings of Jonathan Edwards and he talks about being in the woods, praying and, and being in a state of holy complacency. You know, I, I mean, would, would it be wise for us to talk this way today? And, because we hear the word complacency, that doesn't sound good to us at all, does it? What is complacency? We don't want to become complacent. That's lukewarm. Here's this guy. He's like, holy lukewarm? Um, what? 
We don't talk. So words are always changing. So the, listen, they're, you know, they're updating these words. So what do we say about the charge that the Greek New Testament contains 400,000 heirs? Well, for starters, please know that many of these heirs concern spelling. A lot of them concern spelling. You know, it's a spelling issue. Some of them are spelling errors, as we'll see here in a moment. But let's suppose we had 100 fragments that had the word snowies. And that could be counted as 100 errors. Well, it's not 100 errors. At the time and the date of that document, in fact, scholars use that kind of stuff to help date the document. It's not an error. Um, if we had 250 fragments that had snoigos, that would be counted by this arithmetic as another 250 errors. And you can see where this is where this is going. So many of these so-called errors are updates, changing in spelling. Now, by getting the spelling issues out of the way, I have fielded what are many, I have fielded what we call textual variants. You've probably all heard that word before, a textual variant. Everyone heard that word before? A textual variant. A textual variant is any place among the ancient manuscripts that contains some type of variation. It could be a word order change. It could be the omission of a word. It could be the addition of a word. So we have word order change, um, addition, omission. Um, here's an example of a textual variant. Um, and I think I got this from the same article that had the snow uh, thing that I thought was so wonderful. Um, but it comes from 1 Thessalonians 2.7. You don't need to turn there. Just listen. Paul's describing how he conducted himself among the church. And some manuscripts say, quote, we were gentle among you, end of quote. We were gentle among you. Other manuscripts say we were little children among you. Quote, we were little children among you, end of quote. Now, the difference between those two sentences is one Greek letter. Um, epioi versus nepioi. Now, you see how easy that would be to do? Epioi versus nepioi. If one says, if one is written epioi, then it's translated one way. If the other one's translated, or is, is, is written nepioi, it's translated the other way. And in fact, one medieval scribe wrote hippoi. If you put hippoi in, here's how it translates. It would render the passage, quote, we were horses among you. <laughs> very easily. I mean, we can see how that could just be very easy. Okay, it's an error. It's an error. And, and it wouldn't be hard for us to imagine. I mean, imagine that we're all a group of scribes and there's someone up front reading line by line and as, as they're reading, we're writing and we're going through that process. Our mistake's going to get made. You know? It's not like we go to the printing shop and have this stuff ran off. Uh, of course, mistakes are going to get made. So we can appreciate how easy this would be. Let me offer you another one. If you take your Bible that is near you, and I would suggest you use our Bible instead of your own because I'm going to make use of some footnotes. If you use the church's Bible, and I tried to pile a bunch of them up on the chairs here. Um, if you take the Bible that's near your seat and you turn to Genesis 4.8, we're going to look at a couple of examples that our, our, our pew Bible gives us. Um, Okay, there you read in, in Genesis 4.8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brothers. Everybody see that? Okay, in the ESV, which you're holding, there's a footnote. You see the footnote? 
And if you follow the footnote to the bottom of the page, you'll read, quote, Hebrew, Samaritan, Septuagint, Syriac, Vulgate, add, quote, let us go out to the field. You see that? Okay. Um, what do we have going on here? Well, what that means is that there are Hebrew, Samaritan, Greek, Syrian, and Latin manuscripts that add these seven words. Now, what does this do to the meaning of the passage? Let's insert them. The passage would now read, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. It doesn't change it, does it? No, it doesn't change it at all. It makes no difference in the meaning or the doctrine that is thought by the, by the verse. But let me add here, there's no conspiracy. The ESV translators are not trying to hide this. They put the footnote in there. And it's available. You, you can, if you, you want to see these things, you get, you, get, you get your Bible out. And if it has that apparatus in it, which many Bibles do, uh, sometimes, you know, Bibles are made, you know, economy Bibles are produced so that you can just give them away. They're less expensive. But a lot of Bibles will have these footnotes in them. And you can actually go through an English Bible and look at all these footnotes as you come to them, and you can see all these variants. You know, if the variant is significant enough, it, it'll be in there. Uh, so you can go through, and, and you see there's, there's, no, uh, there, there's no conspiracy to try to hide these things. It's being put out uh, in plain view. Now, let me show you a couple more that are more significant. If you turn to Mark 16 and verse 8, some of you are already familiar with this. These are more significant. Turn with me to Mark 16 and verse 8. And you'll notice that after verse 8, there's a break in the prose. Do you see that? And then the words, quote, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 to 20. See that? All right, and then there's a footnote. And if you follow the footnote to the bottom of the page, the footnote reads, quote, some manuscripts end the book with 16.8. Okay? So some, some editions of Mark end right there at 16 verse 8. Others include verses 9 to 20 immediately after verse 8, like the ESV does here. Okay? A few manuscripts insert additional material after verse 14. One Latin manuscript adds after verse 8 the following but they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Other manuscripts include the same wording after verse 8 and then continue with verses 9 to 20. So you see, my whole exercise here, my whole point here is that the translators are not hiding any of this. Okay? They're not hiding any of this. Uh, they're very clearly showing that this exists. And what they're showing you is that in the best manuscript evidence that we have, these verses aren't there. That's, what, that's really what they, that's why there's the break in the prose. We have the same thing going on in John 7, 52. If you turn to John 7 and verse 52. In fact, uh, you'll need to turn the page after 752. 
to see that there's a break in the prose there as well. After verse 52 on the next page, you read the words, quote, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. And there's a footnote. And notice the footnote here. Some manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. Others add the passage here after 736 or after 2125 or after Luke. So, I mean, that calls a lot of question into the authenticity of these verses, doesn't it? I mean, some of them end up in a different gospel after, after Luke with variations in the text. So, uh, among the manuscripts, we have these words. There's variation concerning their, their, their placement. There's even variations concerning uh, the wording. Uh, so, this raises some flags concerning their authenticity. And most modern English translators point this out. I mean, it's right there. It's not a conspiracy. Um, it's right there. Now, there are many other places that we could turn to to see this kind of thing. But here's the verdict. These textual variants never, 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 never okay, compromise a single major Christian doctrine. You only got 30 seconds at the water cooler, you can say that. Are there textual variants? Yeah. Your Bible will show them here. If we had time, I could show you where some of them are. But they never compromise anything. That's the interesting thing about this. Not one time is a major Christian doctrine compromised. Not one time. Um, so, do you, really, do you see how deceptive it is to go into a classroom uh, full of people who've never heard anything like this? This is one of the reasons why I have such a, you know, I, I've told folks, listen, I'll come and give these talks anywhere I can get an audience because we need to have this because our kids, they go off to college and they hear there's 400,000 errors in the in the New Testament suddenly think we've been dishing out a bunch of fairy tales all their lives. And that's exactly what's happening. It is absolutely deceptive to say to a group of people there are 400,000 errors in the Greek New, New Testament manuscripts and leave it at that. That's actually academic deception to do that, in my opinion. As I've just showed you, many of them are updates. Are there errors? Yeah, there's errors, but many of these are updates. The actual, the, the truth is, the documents actually are accurate with an amazing precision. It is an absolute stunning precision when you consider this stuff's being written on animal hides and papyri and, you know, it's not like you just went down to Staples and picked up a ream of paper and hit, your, hit the control P button on your computer and out comes the document. You know, the pains that the, that the it's abs, I mean, it, it, that says a lot to the fact that this book has been divinely superintended in terms of its transmission. And the fact that we have so many manuscripts. Why do we know about all these errors? Because there's so much evidence. You know, we have over 5,700 Greek biblical manuscripts of the New Testament. 50, over 5,700. We're discovering them all the time. More and more are being discovered. Once in a while you watch the news, you'll hear that they've just recently found another one. Or they recently found this or they recently found that. And besides this, we have thousands upon thousands of manuscripts that have been copied into other languages, as some of the footnotes we saw uh, show. You know, we've got Syriac, we've got Latin, we've got Coptic, we've got all these other, other uh, languages that the Bible has been translated in. And um, it has been said, rightly, that the New Testament could be recreated simply from the writings of the church fathers because they quoted from the New Testament so frequently that we could just sit down with the church fathers and the writings we have of the church fathers and reconstruct the New Testament from those 
quotations themselves. Stunning precision. Stunning precision. Now, there's a story that will sweep you away. I mean, when the King James Bible was translated, if memory serves me correctly, they were only working with like 10 or less manuscripts. There wasn't a whole lot of manuscript evidence that they were working with. Uh, and none of those were older than the 10th century. But since the 1600s, since the King James translation, the King James Bible was translated, thousands of other manuscripts have been discovered. And some of these manuscripts date all the way back to the second century. And imagine the eagerness to get these manuscripts. Okay, we got a manuscript that's 800 years older than the oldest one that we had. Oh, there's going to be errors. We're going to dispute this thing. Imagine the eagerness. And these manuscripts have been compared to their heirs. That is, these early manuscripts have been compared to their copies of copies of copies of copies. And the precision of accuracy is remarkable. It's remarkable. Are there errors? Yes. Are there any major Christian doctrines compromised by these errors? No. No. There's a similar story behind the Old Testament with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and, and now, of the writings that were discovered, all the books of the Hebrew Bible were discovered except, I think, Esther. I think Esther's missing. But the rest of them are, are, are present. And these documents predate our earliest uh, existing documents by something like 800 years. And when the comparison is made of those documents, the precision is stunning. Uh, no major Christian doctrine is compromised. Uh, with these things. So we see the reliability of the scriptures. I mean, if someone wants to take that up with us, the truth is really in our courts. It's not something that we should be afraid of. But the fact is people just don't know. They just don't know. And that's why I feel this is so important to do. You see why? It's so very, very important. Um, so are there variations? Yes. But you know, let me share this with you too. They're not all over the place. If you're worried about them being all over the place, just read, just leaf through, you know, just leaf through a Bible that has that apparatus in it and just leaf page after page. All you got to do is look at the margins. Turn the page, look at the margin, read the margin, and you'll see where they're at. And they have a tendency to cluster in certain places. But for the most part, the precision is, is absolutely stunning. So we've looked at the reliability. See how we're doing on time here? We looked at good, man. We're doing good on time. We looked at the reliability. Let's start on the authority. The authority. You know, ever since what historians call the Enlightenment, the general approach to Scripture has been no different than any other book. And the new mindset that has come to the fore is a mindset that says, okay, we're to approach the Bible and put it through the bar of our own personal courtroom. We don't say that, but that's what we're doing. Uh, we're to approach the Bible and we're to put the Bible through the bar of our own personal courtroom. In other words, we stand as judge and jury over whether the Bible is the Word of God or not. Uh, that's the, the approach that we take. So the Bible becomes the defendant while human reason becomes the prosecutor. In other words, human reason presides as judge over the Bible while the Bible sits in the dock. I think C.S. Lewis put it that way, a similar way. Um, in this scenario, very clearly, human authority rules. Um, and today we typically give our reason ultimate authority. There's that word ultimate authority I asked you to hang on to. Ultimate authority. What is the ultimate authority? It's human reason. Um, now, I want to pick up on that subject. Namely, that the Bible is a divine product. 
That's what, that, these are B.B. Warfield's words. It's a supernatural product. It's a divine product. And B.B. Warfield used this to describe what we call inspiration. I want to talk a little bit about inspiration. And you'll recall the statistics that I used in the introduction that revealed there's an incredible amount of confusion in the area of biblical inspiration. Uh, but what I want to show now is a connection, a, connect, a connection between the biblical doctrine of inspiration and authority. Now, one of the reasons I think there's so much confusion over inspiration is the way the word inspiration is typically used in our culture. You know, how do we typically use it? Well, a lot of times a journalist sits down with a famous uh, somebody, a famous musician or a famous artist, and, and asks them about their latest work, and the artist says he or she was inspired by something, you know. Uh, or another you know, example from music, a very popular question is often asked to musicians is, who were your early influences? And they say, well, you know, this person inspired me in this way, and this person inspired me in that way, and names and works are cited. And if you look up the word inspiration in the dictionary, you'll discover something like this, quote, the process of being mentally stimulated to do or feel something, especially to do something creative. Let me read that again. The process of being mentally stimulated to do or feel something, especially to do something creative. So in theology, you know, the doctrine of inspiration largely gets its name from the King James translation of 2 Timothy 3.16. I ask you to turn there again. Um, we're going to look at this passage a little bit further. In the King James translation... The, the verse reads, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So the modern reader who reads this with the current usage of the word inspiration in mind, you know, he or she may be inclined to understand this in a much looser way uh, than what's being communicated here. And I'm being, you know, I'm being, listen, it's not, it's sh I shouldn't be speaking in a subjunctive here. It's definitely what's going on. When we read this, uh, we, we import, I mean, when we hear the word inspiration, we import what we understand inspiration to be, and we import that into the text. So, in other words, we may be inclined to understand this in terms of some inward something that we can't describe that has led us to create something. Uh, something that is really great, but not something we would necessarily call perfect. I mean, after all, when someone sits down with a musician and says, man, that, that piece that you wrote, I mean, what inspired you to write that? And they say, well, I was inspired by such and such. But I don't know too many artists that would consider their work perfect. They're always striving to make it better. So, like in the back of our minds, there's something that's really good, but not perfect. Follow where I'm going with that? But if we understand the usage of inspiration in 2 Timothy 3.16 that way, we misunderstand the passage. The King James translators use the word inspiration to translate, to translate the Greek word theonoustos. Theonoustos. Now, if you listen to that word really carefully, you'll hear two words that are somewhat familiar to all of us. Theo, that's the word for God. Uh, theology, that's uh, two words. Uh, theos, God. And ology, which is a cognitive logos. So, literally, the, theology would be... Uh, God a word about, or God a word. 
theology, God a word. That sounds strange to us. We would just say, well, it's a study, it's a study of God. Um, theonoustos is uh, the word theos uh, for God, and then uh, neustos or pneuma, which is the Greek word for wind or breath. Uh, so when they're put together, we have God breathe, which is the way many modern translators put it. Instead of using the word inspiration, which is going to confuse. You see how updates take place? We got updates taking place between this King James translation and, you know, within just a matter of 300, 400 years, we got updates taking place here. Um, so we would put God breathe. The NIV renders the passage, all scripture is God breathe. Or the ESV says all scripture is breathed out by God. It's breathed out by God. Well, God breathed, this is a whole different idea than what is commonly understood by the word inspiration. This is out of the mouth of God. Um, here Paul is articulating what the biblical authors everywhere maintain, namely that all Scripture is God's Word breathed into human agents for the purpose of making a written record. That's a whole different thing, isn't it? We should not understand this as a mere dictation that the human writer was simply a secretary writing the words down, uh, although some passages actually are dictation. There are, there are passages, like sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you know, we should never think of it as a dictation. Well, actually, technically, that's not really true. There are some passages where God does actually dictate. The Ten Commandments would be an example. You know, Moses is, you know, it is, it is dictation that's taking place. Um, but much of Scripture reveals that God made use of the author's personality as he breathed these words into the text. I mean, we learn a lot about the personality of Paul, for example, as we read his letters. You know, in worship, we've been reading, systematically reading, uh, all the contribution that Paul makes to the New Testament. Each Lord's Day, we read one chapter out of Paul's letters. We're almost done, but we've been at it for a long time. He contributes so much material to the New Testament. As we read all of this material, we learn a lot about the Apostle Paul. Because how this inspiration works, and we don't fully understand how it works. And again, if we're only going to believe what we fully understand, we're really going to be limited about what we believe. Because we understand so very little. Um, it makes us smaller. Uh, but um, here we see uh, God somehow uses the personality of the human agent to record his word. Uh, we see this in Peter. We learn a lot about Peter's personality uh, in, in the Gospels. We learn a lot about uh, John and Luke. So we learn about Jeremiah in the Old Testament. I mean, he's often been called what? Anybody remember? He's a weeping prophet. Yeah, the weeping prophet. Where would they learn that from? God using his personality. God using Jeremiah as a person. Um, God doesn't use us as machines. He uses us as people. Uh, we're not typewriters. Um, so, listen, we could take up this whole morning on the, on the doctrine of inspiration, but my point for this morning's purposes is this. Behind the human authors of the 66 books that we call the Protestant Bible is one author with a capital A. One author with a capital A. In other words, um, God breathed His words down onto the pages of our Bibles. And because these words are his words, these words possess ultimate authority. There's that word again I want you to hold on to. Ultimate 
authority. Now, what do I mean by ultimate authority? I mean by ultimate authority is the highest authority in which we can appeal. Uh, we, can, we all use an ultimate authority every day. Every time we argue for something, we are using an ultimate authority. We're just often not conscious of it. For example, let's say that, that one of you got up this morning and ran three miles this morning. Now, I don't know if anybody did that or not. But let's suppose one of you got up this morning and ran three miles. I could say, I could say, um, all this electronic gadgetry just always, my goodness. I, I could ask you if, you, if you said this morning, I wanted to be ornery. I could say this. If you said, I got up this morning and I ran three miles before, before our meeting this morning. And I'd say, well, okay, well, how do you know you ran three miles? Well, because I started at my doorstep and I, ra I ran down the corner and all the way down to the store, turned around in the parking lot and come back to my doorstep. I'm like, okay, well, how do you know that's three miles? Well, because I drove it in my car one day and I set the odometer in my car to zero. I drove down to the store, I turned around and I came back and I parked in my driveway and it was exactly three miles. I said, well, how do you know your odometer's correct in your car? Well, because it was calibrated by the manufacturer. Well, how do you know they weren't slipshot in their calibration? You see where this is going? Now, manufacturers, I mean, they are required to submit to certain standards, you know. Now, we all know for marketing purposes how that can sometimes get fudged up. Uh, but you see, in every argument, an argument, just a simple argument that I ran three miles this morning. How do we prove that without appealing to an ultimate authority? The answer is we don't. We cannot. So we see that every argument or worldview for that matter, every argument or worldview has an ultimate authority as a starting point. Somewhere way back after we've covered all the what ifs, what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. We end up back to a starting point which is ultimate, an ultimate authority. Um, let me apply this to biblical authority. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the entire Bible is God-breathed. In other words, the Bible has been given to us by God and the whole Bible is God's Word and there isn't any higher authority than God's Word so God's authority is the highest authority. Does that make sense? And God's Word possesses absolute undeniable authority. God spoke all creation into existence and His Word is supreme. Now someone sitting here who's taking this in might be saying, okay Rick, if I'm putting together what I think you're saying what you're saying is we believe the Bible to be the Word of God because it says it's the Word of God. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it is what I'm saying. And you're thinking, well, wait a second, that doesn't sound too good because if I say that to my, if I say that to my unbelieving friends, they're going to say, well, wait a second, there's lots of books out there that claim to be the Word of God. The Koran, the Book of Mormon, there are many others. Should we believe any book that claims to be the Word of God to be the Word of God because it claims to be the Word of God? And with that question, we're going to take a break. <laughs>